Our uh, first sermon reading today comes from Genesis 2. I'll read verses 5 through 17. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man, the man of dust from the ground, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and then divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of the land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which rose east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And then Genesis 3, starting in verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your lives. Thorn and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you will return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living things. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man to the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And our sermon text is from Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his name. Bless the Lord, all my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all our iniquity, who heals all our diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who grounds you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it and it is gone. Its place, no, no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. 
and his righteousness to children's children. To those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandment, the Lord has established his throne in the heaven and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord. O oh, you who angels, who you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. So our sermon today begins a long time ago, 13.8 billion years ago to be precise. At that point, everything in the universe was collected together in one single dense hot area. There was an explosion, a large one, a big bang, if you will. And within seconds, quarks and electrons began to form. The quarks combined to form neutrons and protons. And as the universe continued to cool from this initial explosion, atoms were born. One of the byproducts of the formation of these atoms was photons, which we also know as light. The first atom to be formed was hydrogen. Hydrogen is the simplest atom consisting of only one proton and electron, as you remember back from chemistry class. In some places, this hydrogen would clump together and uh, attract more hydrogen, heating up and eventually fusing that hydrogen into the second most basic element, helium. As more hydrogen clumped together, it began to fuse helium in a process called nuclear fusion. And as a result, a tremendous amount of energy is produced. We call these clumps of hydrogen atoms fusing to produce helium together and producing energy a star. As those stars grew and increased in mass, this incredible amount of energy uh, that uh, this helium produced would fuse other atoms into heavier elements. These are the elements that make up our periodic table. Eventually, these stars would grow and collapse under their own weight. And if they are massive enough, they explode. The explosions would spread these elements across uh, that were created in the store of the star across the universe. They, these dispersed elements will collect again, clump together and form new stars and planets. And as these elements combine and react, stimulated by the light from their stars, more complex reactions begin to occur. Somewhere in one of these millions of collections of stars called galaxies, in an otherwise insignificant medium-sized star, special compounds formed that gave life or rise to uh, simple life forms. These life forms interacted, producing cells that would convert energy from the sun into oxygen. The oxygen would be used by life forms resulting in megalodons and dinosaurs that would be wiped out by a meteor leading to the rise of mammals and eventually to you and me. So that means that the world and you and me are literally made of stardust. Think about that for a second. Now, if we go by the liturgical calendar, today is the Sunday after Ash Wednesday. Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent. Lent takes us to Good Friday and, and uh, ends with Resurrection Sunday. And the timing is strategic. Lent begins in the cold of winter, but ends with renewal in spring. As such, Lent is uh, a time that we reflect uh, on all the great problems that afflict humanity, which are summed up in Paul's letters as sin and death. The 40 days of Lent are to remind us of the suffering of Jesus as Jesus prepared to confront 
Satan in the wilderness, winning the first in a series of victories over the dark forces of the world. And the great thing about Lent and why we want to observe it is because it forces us to deal with the unpleasantness of the world. We in the Western Evangelical Church, mostly as a result of our privileged position, have chosen to hold issues of suffering and mortality at arm's length and and instead typically present ourselves, our churches, as the happiest place on earth, Disney World without the rides. Yet issues of pain, suffering, life, and death were once areas where the church was really good at. These were the areas where the church was seen as professionals. And now more than ever, I see the need for the church to address these difficult and important topics to the human experience. So my hope is that we use Lent to move us toward that focus of an area that we desperately need uh, the church to engage with. Ash Wednesday forces us face to face with these problems. The famous line of Ash Wednesday is, of course, remember you are dust, and to dust you will return. And today what I want us to do is take a deep dive into the biblical background of this line. Because as we will see, this statement contains a whole lot more than a simple simple statement about mortality. So to do this, let's turn to our first passage from Genesis 1, which details the origin of humanity. And to see what scripture wants us to understand about ourselves in relation to who we are, our relationship with creation, and our relationship with God, our creator. In other words, what does it mean to be human? Who are we? Why are we here? And so our passage begins by setting up a problem for which humanity is a solution. Verse 5 says that there were no bushes or small plants in the land because there was not yet rain. And we are told that the reason for the lack of rain is because no one was there to work the land. And to understand why this is the case and what is going on, think back to Genesis 1, which famously begins with earth described as void and without form. In response to this state of chaos and barrenness, God brings order and life. God solves the problem of disorder and emptiness by dividing the world into realms like the sky and the earth and the land and the sea. God also establishes day and night and the seasons. And then God fills his creation with all manner of life, culminating in the creation of humanity. Genesis 2, following all that, tells us that humanity is needed to bring order and life to the garden that God intends to plant in Eden. And so this suggests a parallel between humanity of God. God. Humanity is meant to function in a similar way as God does, to bring order and life to the land. God certainly does not need humanity to create humanity in order to accomplish the task, but God has chosen to give this task to humanity. It is not clear why God chooses to do so. We aren't told that. But the point is that humanity has been assigned a role and a vocation in creation. And that means we have a purpose. And that purpose is no less than to imitate God himself. So the first point I want to make is that humanity is assigned a lofty role in God's creation. That's why we started off 
with reading Psalm 8 earlier today. And this role naturally entails privilege as well as responsibility. Now, the next key detail we learn from our passage is that God forms humanity from the dust of the ground. Now, when we read that, we typically take this as an indication of humanity's lowly origin. And I do not think that that is entirely wrong. However, I do want to push back on this notion a bit and see if we can read a bit more into it. It's certainly true that humanity's origins are not from eternity like God's. Humanity is a created being and less than God. No doubt that is what, partly what being is communicated here. But let's dig a little deeper and see what that means. And so that means it's time for a word study. Yay! Um, we love word studies, right? Nice. Thanks, Kaden. I appreciate the reassurance. The Hebrew word for dust is afar. And it can then certainly include ideas that we would consider negative. Afar is used for things like rubbish, ashes, dirt. Afar includes this idea of fine particles. Uh, perhaps the idea is to convey that humanity is formed from basic building blocks of creation, something elemental, something like atoms. Yet afar also can also mean not just dirt, it can also mean soil. Now, Back in eighth grade, I took earth science, and I had this uh, teacher. Her name was Ms. Schultz. I still remember her. Uh, and one of her pet peeves was not properly distinguishing between dirt and soil, okay? Dirt was just something that was, like, bad and was out of place. It was, uh, you know, something that, like, uh, marred our, you know, uh, our, 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 like, nice, neat world. But soil was different than that. Soil was something useful. It provides plants with nutrients. You can grow things in it. And I can imagine that to an ancient agriculturally based society, soil was viewed as much more magical than it is from us because we're pretty disconnected from it. But it's here that I think that uh, one of my favorites, uh, my, uh, the great poet and also farmer, Wendell Berry, if you ever read Wendell Berry, uh, is helpful to recapture some of the wonder and mystery of soil. Uh, so here's a quote from his work, The Unsettling of America, Culture and Agriculture. The soil is the great connector of lives, the source and destination of it all. It is the healer and restorer and resurrection, which, by, which uh, disease passes into health, age into youth, death into light without proper care for it we can have no community because without proper care for it we have no life so just to give you a little more exalted understanding of what soil is so if you think about it if you think about this understanding of soil it's possible that humanity's origins from the soil is not a state is not simply a statement of humility that we moderns have usually uh, assigned to it even more so there is another translation of afar that i think makes this point even better afar can be used not just for soil but a tick particular type of soil, which any of us who grew up in the South are very familiar with. Uh, clay. It can also mean clay. It may be that clay moves us closest to what Genesis has in mind, since the word, uh, the verb yatsor is used in verse 7, 
which means to form. That verb yatsor is often used to describe what a potter does with clay. And, you know, think about again this context of the ancient world. Pottery is like super important. It's like as important as an Ikea is to a 20 and 30 year old today. Humanity, as formed from clay, would have underscored their utility and purpose. So I don't think the point of the verse is that humanity sucks because all humanity is nothing but dirt. Instead, I think we have this idea of being reinforced again of vocation and purpose by thinking of soil and clay rather than dirt. Now, I do think that humanity is dust also conveys that humanity is material. Not that it's bad, just material. And therefore, it is subject, we are subject to the limitations of the material world. Humanity has a finite origin. Humanity must be formed by forces outside itself to be useful. Humanity can be broken. No, these are not products of the fall. The fall happens after this passage, but the way humanity was created. And the way God wanted humanity to be in this world. These are not deficiencies or punishments, but part of our personhood in relation to God our creator. And this is underscored by the fact that humanity has no life until it is given by the breath of God. God must move to animate the material world for humanity to be fully alive. In other words, only by the generosity of God can humanity have being. And that fact means that humanity is completely and totally dependent upon God. To be a living creature is to have received a great gift from the creator. And not only is being a living creator a gift, but it's also about receiving the gift of the land in abundance. Notice humanity is lovingly placed in the midst of a garden, teeming with not just a few trees, but a lot of trees. Every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There is both the abundance in necessities, but also the abundance in sensory delights. The trees are good for food, but they are also pleasant to the sight. Precious stones such as gold and onyx are found everywhere. Even bdellium is there, which I had to look up, but that's apparently a perfume. Okay, who knew? Uh, Humanity finds itself in the midst of a land of almost overwhelmingly sensory pleasure of taste, sight, and smell that are all provided as a gift of God. In other words, it's not just about providing for people, it's also about delighting them. Yet this amazing display of generosity is given to humanity along with responsibility. Here we also learn humanity's purpose. Humanity is meant to work and keep the land. The idea here is to take this land that had been given to them out of God's generosity and to manage their allotted creation just as God would have managed it. They are to fill the land with life, to organize, order creation, to ensure this gift of abundance. In future passages, land will be described as an inheritance. An inheritance is something that is meant to continue, to continue the value and the will of its originator for the future and not to be squandered. Which leads to another point. Humanity as a consequence of being constituted from the dust of the earth is connected to the earth in an intimate way. 
Humanity belongs to the earth. Humanity is part of the earth. And this intimate connection should direct and guide humanity in its responsibility of working and keeping the garden in the same way that our responsibility for something like our children is strengthened by the bond we share as connected to them as a family. And this, cl- this passage closes on a note of limitation. Humanity, despite these amazing gifts, their resources, their responsibility is not autonomous. Their judgment is not sacrosanct. Knowledge of good and evil, which elsewhere in the Old Testament seems to mean exercising judgment, is restricted. A hint of this reason occurs at the end of chapter 3, when God says that as a result of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, humanity has become like God, knowing good and evil. And it seems that a concern for humanity's aspiration of the divinity is the principal reason for this prohibition. Adam and Eve's attempt to transcend their creaturely status was the danger of their action in listening to the serpent and eating the forbidden tree. Humanity is, after all, still dust, limited by its materiality, its perspective, and its ability. As Ecclesiastes puts it, we do not know what God has done from the beginning to the end. God's response to Adam and Eve's failure in chapter 3, often referred to as the curse or punishment, can be viewed also kind of as a reaffirmation of this creaturely status. It seems God's design in his response to Adam and Eve's transgression is to reinforce their origin from dust by intensifying some of the points we noticed earlier. Humanity must be reminded of the precariousness of their lives of their utter dependence upon God who breathes life into dust. From now on, their ability to derive pleasure and sustenance from the land will be characterized by struggle. Their ability to create life in which to fulfill the earth will be characterized by pain. Life itself will end in dust as a reminder to everyone of their material and non-divine origins. And the result is that humanity will no longer aspire so easily to divinity as a result of these decrees being a constant reminder that they are dust. Yet, even amidst these limitations, humanity is reaffirmed of their purpose. Life continues through Eve. The human project created with its purpose and responsibility continues. Our charge is still to work and keep the creation. That is what it means to be human. However, Genesis 3 reminds us that we do so with the limits and bounds of our humanity. We are part of creation and should perform the duties and vocations, not with arrogance, but with an attitude of respect for our limitation and ignorance. We must continue to be in awe and obedience of a world that is bigger than us and beyond our comprehension. Our origins from the dust means that life is a mystery to be contemplated, not a problem to be solved. Now, as we reflect on these origins for the dust and what it means for us to be humans, I want to shift gears a little bit and look at what our origins from dust means to God. So, so far we've talked about what being from the dust means to us and how that relates to our responsibilities. But what does that mean to God? 
And so we turn now to Psalm 103. I think this is a great song. I really, a psalm, I really like this one a lot because of all that it teaches us about God. The psalmist begins in verse 2 by asking us to reflect on the many benefits humanity receives from God. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And what follows is a list of these benefits. Most of them are taken from Exodus and Isaiah. Among the benefits humanity receives from God is the forgiveness of sins and the healing of illness. Humanity is crowned with goodness and given that which satisfies. Notice the uh, themes that come out from Genesis, the Genesis passages we read. The abundance of the garden with its multitudes of trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food is very much in view here. God's desire to establish justice in his creation, along with his amazing constant love, is described in over-the-top language, poetry. God's love is as high as the heavens are from above the earth. Forgiveness and mercy are attributes that the psalmist returns to repeatedly throughout the first part of the psalms. In verse 3, God forgives iniquity. In verse 8, God is described as merciful. Verse 9 says that God's anger is fleeting. And 10 says that when God sees us, he does not see our sin. God does not repay us according to our iniquities in verse 12. God removes them. Again, this over-the-top language, as far as the east is from the west. That's beautiful. The picture that is given here is a God who is like a parent who indulges his children rather than the distant deity who's just waiting to smite people when they stray from his arbitrary rules. You don't get any of that sense here in this psalm. It's just beautiful. Now, here's the most amazing part of the psalm, and it's why I chose this for our sermon text this week. So if you think about what's going on here, think about all these amazing attributes of God. And his relationship that is being with humanity that's being recounted here in this you know, amazing, awe-inspiring detail. And then, look at verse 14. In verse 14, God tells us the reasons. We learn the reason for all these incredible features of God's love for his people. For he knows our frame. Okay, I think frame's like a terrible word here. It's like the most non-poetic word you could possibly use. I'm not not sure what would be better, but let me tell you what the Hebrew word here is. The word for frame is yatsor. That word that talks about, like earlier we talked about, like where, you know, if you think about a far as clay and it's being molded, all right, that's the word that's being used here. For he knows our frame. He knows our yatsor. That same word from Genesis 2, 7. And then the verse goes on to say, he remembers that we are dust. And again, that's that word afar. In other words, what that tells us, what the psalm is telling us here, is that God's compassion and love for humanity is based on God's remembrance of our origin. Our dustly origin doesn't inspire revulsion from God. Our creaturely inferiority doesn't result in judgment from God. Instead, our origin inspires gracious loyalty, like a father to her son, to a son. 
human transgression and sin are removed because God understands exactly who we are. Humanity is not divine. We are mortal. We die. Verse 15 and 16 reflect on this by noting that we are like grass or like a flower whose existence is precarious and fleeting. Now, we might think this fact would cause God to find us insignificant. What value could something so uh, temporary possibly have to an infinite and all-powerful being like God? What value do we place on grass and flowers? And that is what is absolutely remarkable here about this whole psalm. According to this psalm, it is this transience that inspires the exact opposite in God. In fact, the psalm, the psalm has God responding to humanity's limitations with two incredible Hebrew words, ones we talk about all the time, hesed and zadek. And so if you've been around Resurrection Church any amount of time, you know Chris and I uh, talk about these words all the time uh, because they recur over and over again to describe exactly why Yahweh, why God, why the Lord is so great. And it's because of these virtues of hesed and zadek. They were the most prized virtues to the ancient Israelites. And, you know, we've talked about before, Hesed's not really a great translation. It's really hard to pin it down. But it basically has this idea about, like, fierce loyalty. Uh, Hesed's a word for a passionate love that conquers all. Uh, Zadok is a little bit easier. It means something like goodness or justice. These are the things about God, that he's passionately loyal. And he wants justice, what is best. He wants goodness for us. And the important point is that these two great and prized characteristics of God are a result of humanity's fragility. The fact that we are but dust. In other words, God sees beyond our fleeting lives. And beyond the futility of loving something that is fragile and temporary. And instead admires and responds to the beauty he finds in creation. It is a love beyond simple explanation and why it can only find its ultimate expression in poetry like in the psalm. Like a poet, God uncovers and responds to beauty that can be easily overlooked. We are to remember we are dust, but God also remembers. But rather than uh, responding with, uh, by the way we might think, he responds with forgiveness, with healing, redemption, crowning, satisfying, renewing, mercy, graciousness, compassion, hesed, exotic. Those are the verbs that are used in this psalm. And what an insight this psalmist has given to us into the mind of God and what makes his relationship with humanity truly extraordinary. We need to remember what it means to be human in both our limitation and our mission. Ash Wednesday forces us to confront the mortality that we would so like to ignore. We must remember our life is a gift and therefore to not repeat the mistake of Adam. It is the forgetfulness of who we are that imagines that we are free to do what we want with the result of greed, selfishness, and brutality. To imagine that no one gives us anything. This gives us license to do what we want. But we must also remember that we are connected to all things and to each other. We are not alone. We are part of something bigger. 
And that should inspire us to the duty we have to care for the world and for each other. Our mission is not to exploit the earth and to oppress or, oppress or ignore the sufferings of humanity. We are given this world as the image of God. And we should look to God and his Hesed and Zadik and implement an order of love and justice. Life is a blessing that is sustained by blessing and is meant to return that blessing. A reflection of all of this, of our dusty origins, lets us know who we are and what we are here for. That's the purpose of Ash Wednesday. We are dust, and to dust we will return. But this fact leads to a God to amazing acts of love. And as we continue the story, we find that God will free us from the enslavement of sin that began in Genesis, and even death itself will be conquered. His kingdom of Hesed and Zadok will eventually rule over all. We are both dust and stardust. And the only way to respond is the way that this psalm ends. Bless the Lord, O my soul.